Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. So we're going through the book of Romans. Many of you have been with us from the beginning, and so I don't want to continuously you know, review everything that we've seen up to this point. But it's important for those who haven't been with us from the beginning to get a good context of what Romans is really all about. You see, Paul never had never up to this point been to Rome. He didn't know any of the people there. And so typically he would travel to a place. He would stay there for a while. And over during that time there, he would share with them the beginning to the end of the gospel from the beginning all the way through the end. But he had never been to Rome. And so he took the time to sit down uh, and and actually dictate it to uh, uh, someone else who will get his name later on in the letter, who wrote this stuff down, which is a summary of what Paul would say uh, if he were there in person, but he wasn't there in person. And I think it's really cool that um, I, be, I, I tend to believe that the Lord prevented him from going to Rome so that he had to write this down so that we 2000 years ago could benefit from this letter to help build our faith and our understanding of really what the good news of the gospel truly is. And so there's a couple of key verses and one of them today is really important. Chapter one, verse five says that Paul's mission was to bring about the obedience of faith amongst all the Gentiles for the Lord's name's sake. And so obedience of faith, it's a play on words because so, so much of the idea uh, then and today is obedience of, to the law, obedience to commands, obedience to do what's right and not do what's wrong. And Paul says, says, no, there's something bigger. There's something greater. It's actually obedience to faith. And he says that we start with faith. This is verse 17. And we continue with faith and we go on by faith and we never divert from faith. The righteousness of God is being revealed from faith to faith, to faith, to faith, and even to faith. And they'll never leave faith. It's just simply dependency upon the Lord. You see, Paul was preaching a unique gospel, a gospel that I think not everyone had picked up on. I believe that God uniquely revealed this message to Paul so that Paul could take it to the ends of the earth. And that is that the righteousness of God comes apart from the law, separate from the law, away from the law, without use of the law. See, Paul says that we, in chapter two and three, he says, we maintain, we believe, we maintain that the righteousness of God comes from comes apart from the law by faith and not by works of, of, of the law. Because there were other people that didn't believe that. There were other people that believed that the righteousness of God is revealed by a combination, by emerging, by taking Judaism and combining it with, uh, with Jesus. So Judaism couldn't save you, per se, because you had sins. So Jesus takes care of that. But now 
Judaism, adherence to the Mosaic law, to the Ten Commandments, now through that obedience to the law, you can now grow in Christ. You can now get better in your relationship with the Lord. And so there was a great contention between what Paul maintained and what other people maintained. And uh, Paul's writing this letter to defend what he knows to be the truth. And he uses in chapter four a couple of um, historical examples of, of uh, to explain that this is how always been by faith. He used Abraham and he used David. That Abraham and David both they talked about and they, they this stuff was written down uh, in the in the Old Testament not just for their benefit but for ours today. That Abraham understood righteousness came by believing, by depending, by faith, and not by any works of the law. And so in chapter five, Paul builds on that and says, we now have peace with God, something the law could never afford. We actually have peace with God through faith. And we now stand, we now stand in this grace. It's not something that we are crawling towards, inching towards, hoping for, but by faith, we have now come into this thing of grace, the grace of God, the new covenant. And so many would ask, okay, if it's by faith, it's, if it's truly grace and no, by no means of, of, of doing any sort of works of the law in order to maintain this relationship, in order to improve this relationship, then why did God give the law, Paul? Well, Paul answers that in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. He says, the law was given. The law came in so that the trespass would increase. Paul saw the truth that the law actually increased trespasses, increased sins. Why? So that the grace of God could truly be seen for what it is greater than all of our sins. And so then two weeks ago, we, we started chapter six and, and we're this is our third week in chapter six because it's so rich and it's so important in our understanding of, of who we now are and what Christ really has done to us. And so Paul he anticipates some questions because he's he's done this a time or two. He shared this message around the Mediterranean world. He knows the questions that are going to be asked to him. And so the first question that was asked that he preemptively asked, because he knows they're thinking of it, is in chapter six, verse one. What then? Okay, Paul, if God's grace is always greater than our sin, then why don't we just continue in sin? That is, why don't we just continue in Adam? Why don't we just continue dead in our iniquities? Because God's grace is always greater, and so God's grace will always win. Grace wins, love wins. So why why not just continue in that condition of being in Adam, of being sinner? And Paul says, no, no, you obviously don't know something. It's If you're going to ask that question, you obviously don't know something. And here's what you obviously don't know, is that you have been placed into Christ Jesus. And if you've been placed, i.e. baptized, into Christ Jesus, then you have been placed into his death. And the death he died to sin, you've died to sin. And the burial he went through, you were buried. And his resurrection, now you've been raised. And so if you've been crucified with him and buried with him to end your relationship, your slavery to sin. Now we have a resurrected new life that is now able to walk in the newness of this life, the life of Christ. Remember, Paul says in Romans 5, that it's not simply the death of Jesus that saves us. It's his life that saves us. Remember, Paul didn't, uh, uh, Adam, after he sinned, didn't just need 
forgiveness. He needed forgiveness, but he needed the restoration of his life, not just forgiveness. And so Paul continues to explain. He says, knowing this, that we have become united with him through death and burial and resurrection. Our old self was crucified. We know this, we have to know this. And if you realize that your old self has been crucified with him, then you realize that we're not gonna continue in Adam or in sin. We were in sin, we were joined to it, we were married to it, we were fused to it. But through death, we've been cut away from it. We've been buried with Christ and a whole new creation has been raised up. Do you know this? And his logical conclusion to this, he says um, in verse uh, 11, he says, the logical conclusion to the realization that we've died with Christ and we've been buried with Christ and we've been raised with Christ, he says, here's the logical conclusion. You yourself have died to sin. You yourself live to God. You live joined to God. Jesus died to sin. Jesus lives to God. You've been placed in him. Here's the logical conclusion. You've died to sin and you live to God. You say, well, I don't feel that. I don't hear anything of Paul saying, let's base this on feelings. This is the reality of the spirit within. And there's conclusions or there's repercussions. There's, there's results. He says, therefore, this is the end of last week. Therefore, since you've died, since you've been raised with Christ, there's, there is no more need for us to present our bodies, ourselves, our, our, our physical bodies to sin any longer for sin to play us. We now have, a, there's another conductor. There's another one who can take your instrument of body and play it for his righteousness, and that's God now. We couldn't do that before because we were slaves to sin, but we've been freed from sin now to allow God to play our lives. So we now look at the last section of chapter 6. This is verse 15 through 23, and this is what we're going to quickly look at for our, our remaining time we have. And here's another question that Paul preemptively asks and answers, because follow the, the, the logic, the train of thought through the book of Romans. You've died to sin. You've, you are no longer under the law. You are now under, you're now in grace. Okay, if that's true, what does that mean? Okay, Paul, if it's true that I'm no longer under sin, under, joined to sin, I'm no longer under law, I'm under grace, and grace is greater than all of my sin, how about if I just sin more and more and more? What, what's wrong with that? Why can't I just sin all the more? And Paul knows that question is going to be asked. It should be asked. And he answers it. Let's pick up in verse 15. He says, what then? What then? Shall we sin because we are not, not under law, but under grace? May it never be. See, verse 1, if you go back to verse 1, verse 1 says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? And now Paul's saying, shall we continue sinning? See, the first was in the location, in the present, in, in our union with the noun, the thing sin. Shall we continue in this union with sin, the inner man and, and sin joined together? Shall we continue in this? And Paul says, no, don't you realize that you've died and you've been raised new and you're now you're joined to the father, you're joined to Jesus. Now Paul is saying, okay, now that we're joined to Jesus, 
What's the big deal about continuing sinning since we're not under law? There is no condemnation, but we're under grace. So here he's not talking about continuing in Adam. He's like, okay, we're in Christ, but why not continue sinning? What's the big deal about continuing to sin if there's no consequence? Why would Paul even ask this question? Why would he anticipate this question being asked? Why would, why would he go ahead and ask and answer this question? Is it because the people were dumb? No, because hopefully the people are hearing what Paul is saying, and this is the logical, albeit fleshly, but the logical question. It could be asked this way. I'm, re I'm going to rewrite the question. All right, Paul, if we have died to sin, and if we are now free from the penalty of sin, which is death, if we're free from that, and we're not under the penalty of the, of the law of, of do this and live and do this and be cursed, and there is no more divine punishment for our sin because Jesus paid it all, then why not go out and sin all the more since there is no more divine penalty anymore? I believe this is a perfect question. If... You're perfectly hearing what Paul is perfectly saying. Quick thought before we even go further. Is this even a question that is considered in our current Christian culture in America today? I mean, when people sit in our churches across America and we hear what's being presented about Jesus, we hear this message, this news, is this a question that people come to when they hear what's being proclaimed today? And I'm going to assume the answer is no, that this isn't a question that is pondered, generally speaking. I don't think this is a question that's being asked. Why is it not being asked, this question of why not continue to sin? Why not continue sinning? since we're no longer under law, but under grace. Why is it not being asked, Walt? Well, because typically what's being presented is a message about Jesus, whom if you trust him, you're, you'll be saved, you'll be in heaven, but God in some sort of way is still keeping a list of your sins and he punishes you for your sins in some sort of way as he observes your behavior, as, as he observes your life. So if if this is your understanding of the gospel, then no, you wouldn't. You would never ask the question, shall I continue sinning since I'm not under law, but under grace? You'd never ask that question because you have been taught, you believe, you understand that God is still watching you, that he's still punishing you. He's, he would remove his presence from you or some sort of reaction or reactionary uh, uh, action to your action. So I submit to you that, that it's only when you hear the truth of God's gospel, the gospel of God's grace, it's only when you hear the truth of that gospel, his gospel, that he is no longer counting your sins anymore because he's counted them all against Jesus once and for all. It's only when you really hear and start to ponder the truth of the gospel that you start to ask these questions that people were asking Paul. But again, 
This question wouldn't even creep to the top of your mind if you're if your understanding of the gospel is that God is still in some sort of way holding your sins against you, that you must confess your sins daily or regularly in order to be forgiven of sins, etc., you would never ask this question. You would think, if you're reading this, you think, what a stupid question. I'm saying it's a perfect question because people are really understanding what Paul is saying. It's the logical conclusion. It's a logical question. Fortunately, over the last eight years or so at Life Journey, We've been asked this question many times, and I say, thankfully, when somebody asks me this question specifically, well, so should we continue, keep on sinning since we're not under law, but under grace? I rejoice. I'm thankful that this question is being asked. Now, unfortunately, not everybody comes to, to, to the understanding that Paul is presenting, that the Spirit would like for us to understand, but many have, and hopefully you have, if you're watching us this morning. And if you haven't, that's okay. Keep watching. Keep keep pressing in. But it's exciting when folk come to see what Jesus really has done to them. And now their behavior truly is an opportunity to be led by the Spirit instead of being led by fear of what God's going to do if I don't or obligation. God, He did all this for me. I better do all that for Him. So it's refreshing to come to a place where you get to uh, see someone ask this question, but then realize the glory of the answer that Paul's going to give here in a few more verses. So how does Paul answer this question? How does he answer this question? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? He answers it. In the most emphatic of ways. In fact, the King James, I think, puts like, God forbid. But the Greek just meganeo, which is simply means may it never be. Like that's that's the absolute worst conclusion to come to. It's a great question. It's a good question. But let's get the right answer to the question. So here's how Paul answers it. Verse 16. Do you not know? See, this is what's so important to us. Do we even know the gospel? Do we even know what Jesus has done? He says this in verse 1 and 2 of the chapter. He says it, he repeats it again in the second, knowing this, that our old man has been crucified. Do we even know that we've been placed into Christ? Do we even know these things? And so let's be careful. You might have grown up in church. You might have a bunch of kids that go to church. You might lead a Sunday school. You might even teach on Sunday evenings or Sunday mornings or whatever in your church. But let's not assume we know it. I didn't know it. I have an undergraduate in religion and two masters in religion. And in fact, the the papers are in that closet back there just rolled up because they don't really mean anything because I went through all of that and I didn't know the truth of the gospel. He says, verse 16, do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the person whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Here's what I hear Paul saying, verse 16, here's the cold, hard facts. If you present yourself to obedience to sin, the result is death. If you present yourself to obedience to God, then the result is righteousness. That's the cold, hard facts. He's already said this back, I think, in chapter one or chapter two. I forget. 
but it's the cold hard facts. If you sin, you you die. If you are perfect, you live. That's just the cold hard facts. If you obey, if you obey God perfectly, if you obey Him perfectly, the result is righteousness. Well, the question then arises, right? It should. Who then can be righteous? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He already said that in Romans 3.23. So who is able? Who is able to do this? Only the one who depends, who depends upon Jesus. The answer is no one on their own. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. That's the whole point why the law was given to show us that you can't do it on your own. Try your best. And when the Pharisees kind of re-orchestrated uh, the whole uh, Judaism into Pharisaical Judaism, and they thought they were really achieving it, then Jesus comes in with the Sermon on the Mount and say, you know, which I can't get into for time's sake, but you have to be as perfect as God is. If you want righteousness on your own, you have to be as perfect as God is. So how's your righteousness? And the answer is, I ain't got none. It's good English. So who can be righteous? Here's the cold facts. You present your body to sin, you're dead. You present your body to God perfectly for obedience, and you live. So who can live? Look at verse 15, 17. Verse 17 is one of those life-changing verses. He says, but thanks to God. God. So the cold hard facts are you sin, you're dead. You perfectly obey, you live. That's the cold hard facts. And the result is no one can live. But thanks be to God, verse 17, that though you were, past tense, slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. I believe this should be one of, this is a life-changing, life-freeing verse for you. Not just verse, but truth for you. Paul just said that only those who are perfectly obedient to God, and, I, and I'm clarifying this, like perfect obedience to God, only those who are perfectly obedient to God qualify for righteousness. And the verdict is no one qualifies. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. You see, God did something that changed the verdict, that changed the verdict of death, dead, and sin. He freed us from our slavery to sin. And how? That's what we talked about the last two weeks. He freed us from our slavery to sin through death with Christ. You have died. That's how you were freed from your slavery to sin. And he's made us now obedient. Where? From the heart. The heart. How did he make our heart obedient? How did he do this? By a new creation, by a new birth, a new you, a new heart, a new soul, a new spirit, a new inner man. The scripture uses so many different terms to talk about this new core of who you are this new you this new creation is created ephesians 4 24 it's so big this new you is created in the very image of god the likeness of god in true holiness and true righteousness this is the new you the the new creation the new you is not the old you sort of spit 
polished off and, and, you know, hey, with a little pat on the rear saying, go try again. That's not the new you. The old you died and a new you has been birthed from the very lawns, the very spirit of God himself and true righteousness, true holiness. Your new heart, according to Paul here in verse 17, is obedient, free from the union of sin, free from its slavery to sin. And it's now joined, it's now chained. He'll use the phrase here in a second, enslaved, which we'll clarify what that means in a minute. Enslaved to God himself. That's huge. Your new heart has been made obedient by birth, not by behavior, but by birth. And what specifically does Paul say we've been made obedient to? He says it. He says, we have been made obedient to the form of teaching that you were committed to. And what's that form of teaching that we were committed or that they Romans specifically were committed to? I, th- I think it's, it's to, the, to the law. They were committed to do this and live. Don't do this and die. They were committed to it because they wanted to live. The requirements, they were, they've been made obedient to the requirements of God. That's what the Romans were so vainly trying to achieve. And Paul is saying that they have been made obedient by birth to these requirements, by birth, not by behavior. And I do want to take a quick time out and say that, that some people uh, may joyfully proclaim this, but they proclaim it in a weird sort of of a positional uh, or legal sort of declaration. You've legally been made obedient. You've legally been made uh, righteous or, or I've even heard the term forensically you're righteous. Like what does CSI have to do with this? I don't know, but you are, you are, you are only obedient in a status, in a, in a, um, in the eyes of God, not really, but in the eyes of God. And I'm here to tell you guys, that's not true at all. Your new heart is obedient in all ways to the requirements of God, because your new heart has been born from him. John, the apostle John picks up on this in first John, I think it's chapter four, where he says on the judgment day, you know, the great fearful judgment day, we will be as he is. We are as he is now in this world. Meaning, however safe, however secure, however um, okay Jesus is on judgment day, that's how safe, that's how secure, that's how you are now in this world. See, this isn't just a, we're going to legally on a piece of paper make a declaration of someone's righteousness, of someone's obedience but truly at their core, they're still filthy, rotten sinners. That's not it. I, I don't know if he truly said it, but Martin Luther was credited with saying that, um, that we are snow covered dung, all right? So at our core, we're still dung, but thankfully the grace of God has covered us with the righteous blanket of snow, of white crystal snow, white pure snow. And that's not true. That's not true at all. We are not snow covered. Abraham, I would say, was snow covered dung because the righteousness of God was credited to him, but he was not born again. You and I, 
Hebrews says, have something that the Old Testament saints longed for. And that's actual new birth. That's actual new righteousness, a new you that has passed from death unto life. And so you're not snow-covered dung, you're snow-covered snow. You are at your core the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. This, this is life trajectory changing sort of things. If this sits in, if this comes in and, 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 and you choose to believe it, if the Holy Spirit reveals this to you and you submit to what he's saying, did you know that your heart, your heart, and what I mean by heart is the core of your spirit, of who you are, your spiritual core, you are perfectly obedient. And if there's somebody out there who wisely would say, no, wait a minute now, Paul, wait a minute, Paul. Uh, I thought the Bible says that the heart is deceitfully wicked. It's desperately wicked that you can't trust it. Yeah, the, the Bible does say that. Jeremiah, in the old covenant, talking about the old heart. And we need to understand that, that the heart that came from Adam, the old dead heart, spiritually dead, is desperately wicked. You cannot trust it. And that's the whole point. The whole point is that the heart, someone has said the, the heart of the matter, the heart of the problem is a problem with the heart. The heart has to change. The heart was, your heart was deceitfully wicked. The old heart, the deceitfully wicked heart that was enslaved to sin has been cut out, crucified and buried with Christ so that a new heart created now in his likeness and true righteousness and true holiness has been now birthed into you as who you now are. So yes, your old man was crucified with Christ buried with Christ and you've now been raised with Christ. The old has gone. The new has come. Verse 18. And having been freed from sin. See, Paul's not backing down on this. He's not backing down. He's bringing greater and greater clarity to our freedom from sin. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now, when we hear the word slaves, this is verse 18. I don't want us to think of the word slave because most of us, at least I do, I think of a slave as somebody being forced to do something that they really don't want to do. And I don't think that's the understanding we should take into this word slave. Don't think of slavery in that way in this verse. Think of instead the idea of being chained, okay? Being chained. We were chained to sin. Wherever sin went, we went. But now we're free from sin. How are we free from sin? Through death, right? And now our new heart is now chained to righteousness. Wherever righteousness goes, we go because we're chained to it. So don't think of the word slavery here as like you're you're your slave you, you really don't want righteousness but you're kind of you're the slave of righteousness so whatever it says you have to do that's not your new heart okay your new heart has the very desires of god himself because that's who your new heart comes from you've been born again born of his spirit right so he paul even admits that his terminology is insufficient he says in verse 19 he says now listen guys i'm speaking in human terms i'm using human 
words, human vernacular, because of the weakness of your flesh. I'm just trying to help you understand this better. And he clarifies it further. For, F-O-R, right here in verse 19. For, just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, which led to, which resulted in, which manifested lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness or as chained to righteousness, which results in, which leads to, which re the results are righteous living. He uses the word here, sanctification, which we'll talk about here in a second. So when you were a slave to sin, you have, uh, you have your body, you gave your body to sin for sin to manifest itself. That's, that's how it worked. But now you are a slave, we're using air quotes, slave of righteousness. So do what you did before. Before, when you were a slave of sin, you, prevent, you presented your body to sin. Now you're a slave of righteousness, so present your body to the slave owner, to righteousness. Do the same thing. Present your body to the one whom you are enslaved to, that you're joined to. Present your body to the one to whom you're chained to, to righteous now. And watch righteousness manifest. It's really simple. We, we make this verse too complicated. It's you were enslaved to sin, right? And you presented your body to sin for sin to sin through you. Now you're free from sin and you're enslaved, joined, chained to righteousness. Now present your body to that master, to your new master, so that righteousness can be righteousness through you. It's just that simple. Uh, and then let's talk about this word sanctification. Because he says here, he says, present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So what is sanctification? And, and we certainly don't have the time right now to like go into a long, detailed discussion about sanctification. But sanctification is not, let's talk about what it's not first, at least certainly not in this context. Sanctification is not you getting more and more holy, okay? That's not what it is. Sanctification is not you getting more and more holy. Paul just said that the new you, your new heart is obedient. It is obedient to God. You are holy. You're not growing in holiness. You're not becoming more holiness. But as we present our bodies to righteousness, the members, that's what he's talking about, our bodies. As we present our bodies to righteousness, then what gets played out through us? Righteous living, holiness, sanctification, holy living gets played out through us. So don't ever think that your holiness is linked to your behavior because it's not. Your holiness is not linked to your behavior. Your behavior is linked to what you believe about who you are. Holiness is a bit in sanctification. There are these big, scary theological church Bible words, right? These Bible words that, that have us all in, in arms because of some bad teaching over the last 2,000 years or so. But, but the word, the Greek word is hagios for all the Greek geeks out there. It simply is, means other, okay? Uncommon, other, okay? So something that's other is different. It's unique from the rest. If we were all sitting together at, at the, at, at the uh, meeting room, you know, 
I get, I've done this before. I pull a chair and I set the chair over where there are no chairs. And I would say that chair is other. These chairs are all together, all common. That chair is other. And that's all that holy means. That's all that sanctification means, other, okay? So it's common versus other. Now, what is the common in this world? What is the common behavior in this world? This world of darkness, the common behavior, the common outworking of the flesh is sin, lewdness, etc., lawlessness. The common is sin and death. So what's the other? What's the unique? What would be different? It's righteous living. It's spirit-based living. It's, it's freedom via dependency upon Christ who lives within. So don't get hung up on this idea of thinking, okay, as we present our bodies to Jesus, we get more and more holy. No, we present our bodies because we are holy. We are righteous. He lives in us and it's not by our working. It's all by his doing within us. But now we become, we, as we, as we believe what he's made us and as we believe what we've become obedient from the heart and we present our bodies to that, then righteousness starts to come forth. It's a fruit, which we'll get into in a second. He explains it further, but I just, again, want to emphasize, we're not talking about you becoming more righteous. You, if you, are you becoming more holy? If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, you have died with him, you've been buried with him, you've been raised with him, and you are as holy as you're going to get. There is no greater you becoming you. You are what he has made you to be. You are a 10 out of 10. You know, we used to ask each other years ago, we should do it more on a scale of one to 10. What are you? What are you right now on a scale of one to 10? And a lot of us will We'll look over the last, you know, 48 hours, 72 hours of our behavior and be like, ah, you know, I, you know, I, I did cut that guy off, you know, on the road, you know, so that's kind of, uh, you know, I did say that one word, but I did, you know, wash the dishes, you know, when I wasn't asked to, I did the, And so we look at our behavior to try to figure out where we are on the scale of one to 10 and our righteousness and our holiness. And I'm just here to say what I believe the scripture is clearly teaching that on a scale of one to 10, if you are born again, believe you're on a scale of one to 10, you're an 11 and it has no bearing on what you've done. It's who you are. And that's what Paul, I believe is trying his hardest to put on into pen and write and send to these people that he's never met. He clarifies it further in verse 20. We only have three more verses. Verse 24, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. I mean, you had no connection to righteousness because you were a slave to sin. Therefore, verse 21, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed of? In other words, when you were a slave of sin and all that you knew to do was to sin and sin manifesting itself through you, what benefit? Where'd that really get you? And I think each of us, if we were honest, we could go around the, I can't say room, what would we call this? We would go around cyberspace here and we could all share stories of how we especially before Christ, but even after we believe in Christ, we've made choices by and presented our bodies to sin for sin to do sin through us. And we have, we could all share stories of how we're ashamed of what the result was. We all, we all have that story. And that's what he's saying. You're ashamed of this. So the outcome of being joined to sin, it's always going to be death. Verse 22, but now talking to the believer, but now, having been freed from sin, freed from your enslavement to sin, 
And now enslaved, again, we're using some air quotes. He just means chained to God, joined to God, one with God. But now enslaved, you now derive your benefit leading to, resulting in the outcome, sanctification, the outcome being eternal life. Now, the only, the result of truly seeing, here's what I hear Paul saying, the result of truly seeing who we now are in Christ is because of Christ and all credit is to Christ. All the credit for this is as we see who, who we are and what he's done to us, we start seeing this other living coming for us, this from us, this holy living, this spiritually fruitful living. In fact, in verse 22, the word benefit, he says, you derive your benefit. The word benefit in the Greek is actually fruit. It's, it means just fruit. In fact, if you have a new a King James Bible or an NIV, some of these other ones, I'm reading out of the New American Standard, but it actually uses the word fruit, karatos. It just simply means the fruit, the natural result is sanctification, is holy living, it's other living. Now, why would Paul call the good works that now flow from your new obedient heart coming out through your bodies, why would he call that fruit? Why would he not call that effort, determination? Think about it. When a, when a tree... When a tree produces its fruit, how much effort does it, that tree exude to produce that fruit? I mean, have you ever, think with me, have you ever seen a tree grunt? Have you ever seen a tree strive? Have you ever seen a, a tree almost give up and then recommit and rededicate its life to producing its fruit? I've not. Maybe you have. And if you have, get a video on that because you'll definitely go viral. But I've not seen a tree ever strive to produce its fruit. The fruit is natural. It's natural. It's manifesting its true identity naturally. You know, there's there's many fruit trees, right? Uh, and and for me, I'm a, I'm a I don't know all the different you know ways to determine what a what tree is what. The easiest way for me. To determine what tree is what is by looking at its fruit. That's the easiest way for me. I can say, oh, that's an orange tree. My parents used to live down in, in Winter Haven, Florida. And man, orange grows upon orange grows upon orange grows. And, you know, it's very easy. That's an orange tree because it has oranges growing from it. That's an apple tree because, well, obviously it has apples growing from it. You see what I mean? That's a watermelon tree because look, those big watermelons that are growing from the watermelon tree and so on. So we can identify the fruit, the tree based on the fruit that it bears. That's, that's true. But let's just say, let's just say for argument's sake that the harvest time hasn't come yet. Let's just say that it's midwinter and there aren't any leaves even to help identify. Because I think I can actually identify a peach tree by its leaf because my grandparents used to have a peach tree. But let's just say that maybe even the tree is so young that it hasn't even produced a fruit yet ever in its life. Follow me, follow me. Is that orange tree still an orange tree, even though it doesn't have oranges hanging from its branches. 
I don't mean to get too philosophical on us on a Sunday morning, but is an orange tree still an orange tree even if it doesn't have oranges hanging from its branches? And we would easily say, well, yes, of course it's an orange tree. To which we could say, well, but it's not, it doesn't have any oranges hanging from it. How could it be an orange tree if there aren't any oranges hanging from it? Well, the tree is an orange tree because, listen to me, because of the seed from which it grew. The orange tree is an orange tree because of the seed from which it grew. Its DNA is orange tree. You might not be able to see it all the time from the outside. Sometimes you can during harvest, easy. But during the winter, when the tree is young, immature, you don't see it. But is it nevertheless still an orange tree? Now, let's just say you've got that young orange tree that's never produced oranges or any tree, whatever tree you want to pick. Um, that's a young, immature tree, orange tree, fruit tree of your picking. And you go out to that orange tree. Well, I'll just use some peach trees. We, we planted two peach trees in our front yard uh, last month. These are young. They don't have any, they have some blossoms, but they're not going to produce any fruit, I don't guess, for a long time. I really don't know. So do I go up to that tree and encourage it to try harder at producing its fruit? Do I go up to that young tree and I say, wait a minute, I thought you were a peach tree. How come you don't have any peaches on it? Do I go up to that tree and try to uh, condemn it for not having peaches on it, et cetera, and so forth? Do I try to motivate it by trying harder, by recommitting itself to being a peach tree? That's, I'm not a botanist, but I'm pretty sure that's not the way it works. The peach tree will produce peaches naturally. So here's what I'm getting at. The fruit being present does not make it an orange tree or not an orange tree. The tree is an orange tree because the tree is an orange tree by who it is. Listen to me, believers. Listen. If you're a believer in Jesus, listen, please. You are born from the very seed of God. Read John chapter 3 if you don't believe me. You are born from the very seed of God. And you have been made, according to Paul here in verse 17, you've been made obedient from the heart. And it's not because of what you've done. It's because of what you've been born from and born into. You are new. You are righteous. You are holy. You are clean. You are close. You are blessed with every single spiritual blessing. You are who you are because of the seed from which you now grow. It's who you are. And as your mind is set on who you are, you will be able to watch effortlessly the fruit of God's righteousness, his holiness being manifested through you like a tree effortlessly produces its fruit. Not by labor, not by force, not by condemnation, not by rededication, not by trying harder, but as natural results of being and seeing who you truly are. This is the gospel of the grace of God. This is the finished work of the cross. And Paul summarizes this whole thing in verse 23, our last verse, where he says, For 
the wages of sin is death. The result of sin, of being joined to sin, of being in sin, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. See, that's what Adam lost. And that's what you and I did not have when we entered in this world. Life, the life of God. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, shall we continue to continue sinning? What a foolish, not a foolish question. I think it's the perfect question if you're hearing what Paul is really saying. But what, what a horrible conclusion. Hey, let's just go out and sin all the more. Do you not know who you are? Do you not know? That your old man has died and the new you has come. Do you not know? Do you not see the DNA from which you have been born? The righteousness and holiness of God. And as our minds are set on that, on who we truly are, you just watch the natural fruit. Not by effort, not by uh, might, not by strength, but by the grace of God begin to manifest through you. So I encourage you this week, don't try. Don't try to be more Christ-like to your kids. Don't try to be more Christ-like to your customers. Don't try to be more forgiving to your coworkers. Don't try to be more fill-in-the-blank. Don't Stop trying and start trusting who you really are. If you have come to the point of placing your faith in Christ, trust what he's made you. Trust what the scripture is revealing that you died. The old you that was a slave to sin has died. And now you are a slave of righteousness. You are joined to righteousness. That's who you are. Not against your will. It's what you want. That your new heart has been birthed from God himself. You have been born from his seed of righteousness. That's who you are. And as your mind is set on that, watch out. Watch what comes forth, not by effort, but by the natural result of Christ's life coming through. So here's our journey marker as we wrap up chapter six. And this grand conclusion of chapter six it says, my heart, your heart, if you're a believer in Christ was, yes, it was wicked. It was deceitful. It was unable to trust. Absolutely. 100%. It was. But now. Your heart, the core of who you are, is obedient and trustworthy. That's who you are. In fact, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, Paul says to actually trust your heart in regards to how you want to give to help other people, whether it's other people in the church, whether it's other people in the uh, community. But look into your heart as to how you want to give financially to help someone else. Well, if the heart is deceitful, then why would he say that? No, he trusts your heart because he knows that God has made your heart obedient to him. So now the question that we need to dive into further is, okay, how do I distinguish my heart from sin that still certainly dwells and lives in the body, in the flesh? Because sin still lives. Sin is quarantined to the flesh, absolutely. But that's not who you are. You are not sin. You've been freed from sin. You are not slave to sin. You've died to sin if you're in Christ, if you've believed upon Jesus. So your heart, your very heart, 
is not slowly becoming more obedient. Your heart is not deceitful. Your heart is not far from God. Your heart has been born from him. Your heart is now enslaved, chained, joined to him. Again, I use the air quotes. Just make sure we're not thinking of your heart is doing something he doesn't want to do. He's using human terms. He says, this, this, this doesn't fully represent what I'm trying to say, but I'm using it nonetheless. I'm using human terms that you now are chained to him. So that's where I'm going to leave off chapter six. Uh, certainly there's not, uh, we haven't uncovered every single jot and tittle, but um, next week we're going to continue on into chapter seven, where Paul communicates this very same thing, but from a different angle using the law to communicate it. And you know what I think is so great about chapter seven is that Paul gives his own personal testimony of how this very thing that we just looked at in chapter six, or we'll look at it more in chapter seven, how it played out in his own life as an unbeliever, as a, as a good little Hebrew boy in Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus, how this dedication to the law really manifested sin in his life. It was his commitment to the 10 commandments that resulted in death to him. And that's what the Apostle Paul and all the New Testament writers are trying to get us to understand. That we do not live by law, by the commandments. The commandments were given to reveal to us our death and our inability to be okay with God. And now, by God's gift of Jesus Christ, we now have everything that we ever hoped to have through the law and more. True obedience from the heart. The question really comes to, now, Where is our mind? Where's our mindset? And Paul ultimately gets to that in chapter 12. We'll get there. He gets there in chapter 12. We're just going to take a while because we're looking at this chunk at a time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we have. Thank you for just the richness of what we're seeing in Romans and how we have, you know, something amazing, something real, something dynamic, something life-changing has really happened And so many of us see it not. Not because it's hidden, necessarily. Not because it's a secret, necessarily. But because it is not of the flesh. And our minds are so set on the flesh that it's hard for us to see the Spirit. It's hard for us to see what you've done truly within. And I just pray, Father, as we go through this week with the challenges we face, I pray that you would... Um, help us to see the truth of who we are. There might be somebody watching who hasn't even, you know, walked in a church building in 30 years. But because of this current situation that we find ourselves in, there are folk who are stumble across and have been listening and considering this wonderful news of a new heart, a new life in Christ. And I pray, Father, that if they've not trusted you, that today they begin trusting you that they transfer their trust from themselves, thinking that they can be righteous on their own, to now trusting you, that you are the only way for us to be okay with you. It's all you. And we thank you so much for that. And I pray as we, um, as we meet again, hopefully in a more connected fashion, again, through some other sort of technology, that we would uh, be con- thinking of each other and praying for each other and in other ways creatively encouraging one another. We love you very much. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. 
We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.